HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. We've been making cheese in Wisconsin since before we were even a state, which may be one reason why we win so many awards for it. It's what happens when a whole state dreams in cheese. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. You're listening to Fields, the podcast. I'm Wythe Marshall. And I'm Melissa Metric. On Fields, we're bringing you the stories of people who are working in the world of urban agriculture. For money, for fun, for art, for justice to feed the hungry, to green the city, or to uncover its history. In each episode of Fields, we'll delve into one kind of food that's grown in cities, one technology used to grow, or one project that teaches us something about our relationship to farming in urban environments. Moreover, we'll investigate all the whys behind getting up in the morning and working as a farmer in the city today. You don't need to be a farmer to enjoy this podcast, or even a foodie. We're going to tell fascinating stories and break down the realities and possible futures of urban farming to their elements. Hey, welcome back to Fields, the unfinished story of urban agriculture. I'm Wythe Marshall, and as always, I'm joined by... I'm Alyssa Metric. And today we have a very special guest. It's Henry Abispo. Hey, Henry, how's it going, man? Hi, guys. How are you? Uh, Good. Thank you so much for joining us, despite the cold. It's kind of turning cold now. It's freezing. Yeah. (laughs) Recording this in mid-November. But uh, we're very excited to see you twice in one day, in fact. So we're in the Bronx. Now we're here in Brooklyn. Yeah. A lot of urban ag stuff going on, lots to talk about. Um, Maybe, Melissa, do you think we should just allow, you know, ask Henry to sort of introduce himself first? What do you think? Yeah, that'd be great. So, um, yeah, Henry, if you could just like really quickly introduce yourself and yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. So I'm Henry Obispo and I am a child of the Bronx, um, raised in the Bronx since um, uh, the age of five. Um, I was born in the Dominican Republic. Um, why that's important? It's not just because of the, it's my, uh, I would say, my story, but because it's linked to um, essentially what I'm doing now. Um, it is these worlds that I um, end up um, inhabiting that really form my way forward. Um, and so I've been working in the community in the South Bronx specifically for over a decade, um, creating solutions and really thinking about uh, my passion, which is nature and food and, and how that can be a catalyst for 
change and empowerment and transformation. Was there like a first initial project or something that kind of got you more into it or got you into this field in general? I would say that yes, but it wasn't specific. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I had been living in Brazil for some time and I actually, that is, that's where I, I decided that I wanted to be an entrepreneur, but really a social entrepreneur um, because I really cared about people and the planet and communities. And so I started to think about what that would be. Um, and it was upon my return that I started canvassing my my neighborhood and the South Bronx to see what it was that I wanted to connect with, uh, what needed my attention and my help. And it was re- it's really there that I um, connect to that, you know, that childhood in the Dominican Republic, because at a very early age, I was connected to plants and nature and fruits. I was obsessed with um, with fruits and I was obsessed with food and how you could transform a plant into something edible and all of these things. So I started cooking very early at the age of three. I was already cooking and creating wow. things in the backyard and like um, Were you helping just, garden, like kind of participating with the family, like yeah, tending so, plants. You know? Yeah. So um, it was almost like involuntary. Uh, because it was happening and my, my family in the Dominican Republic had uh, a parcel of land that most families have in sort of like the semi-rural areas. And they're called conucos. And these conucos are indigenous um, in terms of how people plant um, in almost like um, a hill uh, of, of sorts. Um, and it's a, a, I would call it a, a Taino technology, an indigenous technology of of, of agriculture. Um, and so my family, um, had that as well. Um, and so we would, we would go there to harvest. We would go there to essentially get our, you know, our weekly tubers or whatnot. Um, and it's really that connection to that and the food, um, that allowed me now to focus when I was in the South Bronx, um, to focus around these ideas um, because it's what was very dear to me. Um, and so as a result of that, I partnered with local nonprofits um, and was able to get a small grant from the USDA in that partnership. It was like $25,000. But that $25,000 allowed me to canvas the entire South Bronx um, from a solutions-based approach. Um, and it was incredible because I ended up connecting with pretty much everyone that had been working in food systems, um, all all levels, um, and learning what had been done before me, what had been happening at the moment. And that is how I was able for those six months to really look um, at all this information and see where the sort of the holes were. And my job essentially was to look at all this information uh, you know, engaging with all stakeholders, clergy, uh, elected officials, uh, business owners, activists, everybody, um, and seeing where those gaps were. When was this? This was 20, 2013, 20. 
2014. So about so about a decade ago, yeah. basically, you sort of began the journey yeah. of, okay, I'm going to be an entrepreneur specifically related to food and ag, and specifically you chose, like, I'm going to go home, like, I'm going to do it in the Bronx, for the Bronx, and you started with this research project, which was USDA-funded. So we'll talk about sort of what the businesses you develop, but just, just to set the picture, also for listeners who are in New York or don't know the Bronx that well, I mean, the Bronx is amazing in terms of food for a number of reasons. It's home to New York Botanical Garden, which is, you know, the supreme institution for botanical knowledge, you know, in the Northeast the, one the world, in the I world. Yeah. I mean, it's up there. It's like with, you know, Kew Gardens and whatnot. And um, it's also home of uh, Hunts Point and the, the the food distribution hub, which through which, you know, fourth of all food, but but something like, you know, the, the overwhelming majority of, of fresh produce is, is passing every day. So whatever we're eating a, a lot of it and most of the fresh stuff is stopping off in the South Bronx and people don't necessarily know that and how critical this large area of food distribution is that's active all day long and has this wild rhythm where at night, you know, trucks are loading to go to grocery stores to, you know, be stocked so that in the morning you buy food and restaurants can buy food and et cetera. So I think, I think the idea that like the Bronx isn't just a place where people live, it's also where New York City is really getting its food and there, you know, there's also an abundance of community gardens, of course. Um, but I, but I think again, it's, it's like a very special area, um, to, to have decided like, all right, this is home. This is where I'm going to kind of jump into starting a business. So I guess the next question would be, what did you do with that knowledge? What, what did you decide to pursue? So it was, it was a, it was a lot of information. Um, also because I, you know, you're coming in with new ideas, but, um, are they new really? Mm. And so it was really questioning a lot of the, 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 the ideas I had um, and understanding that I was really standing on shoulders of, of people that for generations had been looking and working to create solutions and bring forth change and that they had essentially done that and uh, pushed essentially the needle forward uh, a tremendous amount. Um, and so it, it was. it's learning that Right. Which is very, very important because you can't start thinking that you're going to be the savior of everything um, from a very sort of like egoic um, place. You have to acknowledge what's there and what's been there. Um, And so it was really that understanding that really grounded me. um, And I understood that I had to if I was going to step into this, I needed to I was going to build on that Mm -hmm. Um, and ways that, you know, I did that was by partnering with these institutions um, that were looking to find solutions. Um, And I just happened to have a a specific perspective because of my lived experiences and because of how I connect certain dots that um, I was now, and the level of energy that I bring, which is very much so, you know, Aries energy that's very forward and very entrepreneurial in that way. And it's to get things done. Um, and so with with all that, uh, we were able to develop um, and launch Born Juice, uh, which is a zero waste um, juice company uh, that focused really on nutrition and nutritionally dense foods for the community, um, as well as education around food, but also planet. Um, and it was a really novel idea, not the fact that it was a juice company, but that we were doing all of these things with it. And it, the beauty of, of, of that, which I didn't know at that point, was that all of this engagement that I did for six months, um, I thought that I was 
in many ways collecting information. But what I really was doing was building relationships. And I, it, I only really realized it when I launched Born Jews and they, these institutions now were coming to me and saying, hey, what, we heard this. We heard you're launching something. We want to be a part of it. And that was a complete surprise to me. Um, and that is essentially the model for Born Jews. We thought it was going to be, you know, um, us preparing juices and selling it to customers, et cetera. But it ended up being that the business model was um, us creating these experiential components for institutions and schools. And also we would engage with um, individuals, but it was it was we would be hired for all of these things. And it would really came about by way of that initial engagement. Mm. Um, that wasn't a business model that we would have even thought about because um, we were thinking traditionally, um, you know, one-on-one customer to uh, that type of relationship, but that right. was that was really incredible. So that was the social entrepreneurship part. Is you weren't yeah. just selling juice; you were building experiences around learning about food, and you're trying to work with people already in the area. You know, as a, so it's not sort of um, didactic, like telling people what to think, but kind of working with them, understanding what they want. Yeah, or or being like, you know, I, I've heard there's a problem in this neighborhood. Mm. I'm going to fix it or I'm going to come in and right. give this solution. Instead, it's actually going to the community and being like, hey, what is going on here? Already being a part of the community, asking like, where can we help in these certain aspects? And also going to community leaders, community activists, building those relationships I always feel like that's that's key in 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 working with any community. It's like actually going there in a very respectful way, and especially if you're a part of it, yeah. and just being like, "Hey, what what's yeah. going on?" And yeah. so, so imagine this is going to apply. I think if I'm jumping ahead to the urban ag story as well, where you're going to sort of take the same approach with growing food. But may I ask, just as a quick follow up? Yeah. And sorry, Melissa, if you have another question, yeah. please jump in after. But how were you? What were you sourcing when you launched the juice company? Where was you know, the, the, the material for the juice is coming from. And is that something, you know, is that something you were thinking about already or, yeah. or did that sort of shift over time? Yeah. So initially, you know, it was, it was thinking about nutrition um, and how can we focus on health? Um, and then it, it evolved to very soon um, how, like the sourcing and um, how, uh, you know, what is this, is the produce organic? What is the cost for this? How can we mitigate that? What is the connection to um, to agriculture? Um, what about these institutions that we're dealing also locally with with produce? Um, could we connect with them? Could we build partnerships around that? Um, and it was a lot of questions, and we didn't have all the answers. Uh, for these questions that would arise. Um, and so, but we did ended up uh, partnering with Grow NYC. We ended up partnering with um, Bronx Health Reach and other organizations that were focused on produce, delivering, connecting people by way of also um, CSAs, um, having relationships with the Corbin Hill um, uh, very early on um, around these ideas um, about uh, on distribution, um, and so then we realized that why 
<laughs> why should we outsource that if we could um, build our own farm and maybe source from there? But how could that be done if it's this is a city? And sort of thinking of all of these things uh, led us to start dreaming and start talking to more people. Um, and it was really then that we ended up connecting with other nonprofits that actually could leverage space and could leverage other resources and grants, et cetera, because obviously we weren't, we didn't have those means. Um, and by way of that and building those relationships, uh, we were able to launch uh, a, a farm on Bruckner Boulevard in partnership with um, a local nonprofit. Uh, it was a very small farm. And that farm essentially created that pilot aspect for this juice. And then beyond that, we once we started developing that idea, we realized that with our partnerships, um, there was another opportunity to even extend it further. And that is when we started thinking about this idea of the restaurant cooperative and launching this the United Business Cooperative to connect local immigrant mom and pop um, business owners, specifically in the food business, uh, with fresh produce that was hyper local. Because you know when you're thinking about distribution, why not connect to the people that are already there, the stakeholders, um, and some of them that may not be doing so well because they're not being prized in in by either the city or the community. They're not looked at you know, as a sort of a novel, a novel business, but they are stakeholders. They've been there for 15, 20 years. And our engagement was to connect with them and to be able to bring this produce to them as well. Um, so that was the start of that, that led to now other ideas, um, which that other idea is the Bronx Salad Initiative that um, I can definitely talk more about that, but that's the the initiative that really launched everything, and it's the precursor to Reborn Farms. Well, yeah, yeah just yeah, yeah. So it's really interesting just to hear you go into this, um, how uh, you all kind of traveled into the local produce section. So this pilot farm, and then um, finding um, or helping or this restaurant cooperative that would kind of help them get more local produce and probably affordable local produce because whenever I think of local produce for some reason I think of it as expensive and it's like for a mom and pop especially that's been there for a long time how do you um, a give them healthy fresh produce but that's all local and inexpensive because I know with restaurants in general it's like they're line of operation and oh, yeah. you know profit and oh, all yeah. that stuff is is isn't that the bar you know like it's it's not that high so it's like and also to try something new yeah. which which seems like that would also be like people especially if they've been doing a business for a while you know how do you get folks to try something new i'm, I'm like i'm 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 having flashbacks right now because <laughs> no, it's like you know what um it is the most rewarding thing but it's the hardest work to organize people. Community organizing is the hardest work like on the planet. Yeah. Because to your point, um, to get someone to engage with someone to not just to 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 say yes to something that you're 
that doesn't know you. They don't know you. You're coming to them because you want to create something that would benefit the community and they are part of it and they're you know, pillars in the community. And so for them to accept you because they've been battered by so many things, whether it's like the city creating barriers, um, these are also people that didn't speak the language or you know, their status may not have been legal, et cetera. So there are a lot of ways that um, people have been in, in this industry abused. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they're many times they're not trusting. And so if you're coming to them with solutions, they're always, you know, there's a there's a there's a wall there that you have to be able to break down. Um, and the way that you do that is by continuous engagement. And sometimes it would be a week engaging with someone with a, a restaurant owner, um, and they would be okay with that and wanting and they would want to be part of this program because it sounded really incredible. And then sometimes it took six months to engage the other one. It took us engaging with them every week or every other week so that they know that we actually really mean it and that we you know we're not here to extract or anything like that. And so. It's the commitment to that, whether it it happens immediately or it doesn't. And that's the thing. And that's why a lot of work doesn't move forward, because it's it's almost like people assume that it's going to happen right away. Mm. And that's just not the case. Um, And to get people to organize around these ideas, especially um, this idea of hyperlocal produce and access, um, because it's very expensive. So. The way that we started engaging them was to think about collective purchasing, because if they pay a premium individually, what would happen if you collectively engaged? And that's the game changer. Um, so that's how we engaged uh, uh, these ideas um, around collective purchasing. Yeah, and I just want to underline. I think it's so cool, and I think this is one of these lessons we can draw from born and reborn, and 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 broadly thinking about you know urban food systems and and what solutions can work is it's not like you made a quote-unquote solution and then brought it to people and shopped it around like hey here's this local lettuce i'm growing for example you were working with people to collectivize them as cooperatives you know mom and pop restaurants to help them you know modernize and understand the city i know you know we've heard this from bodegas and and my research the inspectors come and they find you because something is out of place and people don't necessarily totally understand they're not getting a lot of support, so they don't feel trusting. They don't. They, they feel say, targeted. Okay. Yeah, they feel yeah. targeted. There's yeah. just like a sometimes tap. they are. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think it's very different to go to with that pain point and work with them in a different way as opposed to just selling them a product, because then you're getting that buy-in and and a, you know collective agreement, and it takes longer, but then it leads to oh, it's solid. Once right. it's done, it's the most solid thing. Like the relationships are forever. Because people have their own aha moment about the produce, about lo- you know local growing, et cetera, whatever it is. And they can learn because they're interested. It's you're not kind of trying to tell them something they don't want to hear. Yeah. So anyway, exactly. I think that's super cool. So uh, um, can you tell us a little about, um, I, I always get the name wrong, but the Union of Wor- uh, the Union of Worker Cooperative? Union? The United Business Cooperative. United Business Cooperative. See, why well, can't I remember that? I'm, oh, <laughs> it's, a long, it's a long name. Um, no, it's good. It's just, I, yeah, so, I know it's, 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 it's important. And I think maybe that transitions into the Bronx salad or. Yeah, it's connected. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the United Business Cooperative, man, it's, um, it, 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 it's something that came together very organically. And I was in many ways assisting, um, 
that's how I came to be. It or it started before me, uh, meaning that these uh, several of these restaurant owners um, and food business uh, entrepreneurs started having conversations with each other and started saying, "Hey, I feel like I'm being harassed, or I feel like." You know, uh, something, some like a group is tapping into me, or uh, the city is um, being unfair, and they started these conversations, um, and so they brought these conversations to one of our partners uh, locally, and within that conversation, there was a greater one, which was, why don't you guys bring these ideas together of what you could do? and maybe we can help you. And it was really that that started this group. And so I just came to really organize them because many of them didn't speak the language. And so I started, because I also had launched Born Juice and, and I was embedded in the food world like that, and I had all of these partners um, that I could be of service to this this group of people, which were at that at the uh, when I was um, essentially presiding over it um, or stewarding it, uh, there were forty five restaurants that were part of it. Um, and That's a lot. Yeah, it's yeah, a yeah, lot. Yeah, and it was it was just so impactful because they they. It, <laughs> They came together themselves. And then from there, you know, the word spreads because they if, if there's buy in, then it's like those walls are down also. Um, so a lot of them started joining because they trusted that, you know, their uh, their friends who were also in this business um, were a part of it. And they said, it's yeah, it's it's legit. Um, or actually also like, oh, we're forming it. Um, so it really started like that. And my role was to really organize and help organize um, and to steward that project in terms of um, f like financial access, like access to money so that we could uh, provide small grants, um, help with uh, menu development when it comes to thinking about health. But also my, you know, my point of view is always uh, planet. Um, so it's like, okay, how are we thinking about these ideas of sustainability before like anyone was really thinking about this in like this world that was, it's my passion. And so I wanted to bring that there. Um, so it's also developing zero waste, uh, um, I would say, uh, dishes from, you know, we would see what they would create and then we would say, okay, you're discarding this. What if we could create something with this? And so we would bring um, chefs or I myself would engage them and we we'll, would create dishes from things that would normally be discarded. Um, and then, you know, when it comes to their bottom line, now it's, it's, it's helping them uh, because they don't, they have a total new dish or two dishes that yeah. was really based on what they already had. So it was rethinking all of these things um, and tapping into that, helping them with their uh, space, with the, um, uh, the physical aspects of their space uh, that could be more viable for them. And all really thinking about um, helping them and strengthen their business um, and their finances, but also to to maintain and remain culturally relevant to them, mm. not to whitewash them yeah. or like get them ready for, you know, uh, because, you know, the South Bronx at that point started to 
gentrify. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And so it was with that in mind saying, hey, if we can strengthen these businesses, they won't be kicked out yeah. eventually. And so it was also from that place that we um, engaged the cooperative. Right. Like if they didn't change, they were going to die, essentially get gobbled up. So you, you formed, it sounds almost like a mini Mondragon. You know, you had this whole network of people coming together and rethinking top to bottom with the three P's in mind, you know, their businesses. So they're, it was still within the market. They're still trying to make money and actually make more money, but in part by, you know, using, uh, having less waste and, and, exactly. and being sort of kinder to each other in the community and yeah. thinking about that. So very cool. And that leads into the Bronx salad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which is the, a good the, name. And it's yeah. like, even if yeah. you don't know what it is, I feel like people are the famous meaning Bronx in. salad. I mean, the Bronx salad is the new Cobb salad or the new Caesar salad. Right, you know? right, right. <laughs> you're going to order like it. You're going to go around the world. That is, that you're gonna was. going to go to like Hong Kong and be like, I would like the Bronx salad, please. That, that's exactly what. I can kind of actually see that but in the, like Hong Kong. Right, like, yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it's an incredible uh, story because out of, you know, all the work that we were doing, um, also, again, the institutions or the community and the organizations uh, would hear about it or would be, you know, involved in some way. And that's how we went into partnership with Bronx HealthReach, um, who uh, is connected to a wide, I would say, coalition of 70 organizations that ended up partnering also in this uh, project, this initiative. And it really was thinking about what if we created something that would be culturally relevant, um, that would bring health, that would also allow the Bronx to tell a story that was very positive, because it's a it's an incredible place, and people should um, think of it as such. Um, and so it dawned on myself and. Um, the, the organization I was working with, that it, it should it should be a dish. And this dish, then that's when the name came, the Bronx Salad. And it was like an aha moment. Um, and it stuck. And we're like, yeah, that's what we should create. And we should connect the farm to this dish, source it locally, and showcase this hyper-local aspect of it. Obviously, not all the ingredients are... Uh, uh, grown there because there are tropical ingredients in the salad um, also but if what if we could showcase that component and what if we could connect all these other things to it what if we thought of it as a system that was really the idea so there's a dish and it took us like five six months 13 iterations to develop with in partnerships with chefs also. That's a long time that to a develop time. a dish. When, when That's was a this long again? Time. When, this what, was what 20, year have we moved forward? From 2015 to 2019. Okay, so up to the pandemic. So Yes. And what yeah. are the ingredients? So in the it? ingredients, um, greens, right? Um, we ended up being flexible with that because you could have your lettuce or whatever greens you have. Arugula! Yeah, all of, all of the above. Um, there was avocado. The idea is that for the, the iterations, we had 13 iterations, and it took us that long because we surveyed over 300 people. And the people spoke, and they said that that's what they wanted. They're like, um, we don't want kale. <laughs> not, yeah, they, 
they said that. Yeah, yeah. I know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know, but but, but they but. did because we had one of the iterations was that. Yeah, um, and we learned so much, so much um, of just like assuming. When you assume for people that go into communities and assume like, yeah, just because you have good intentions, that doesn't translate well. And that doesn't mean it's going to be successful or that people are going to receive it. The good intentions are, you know, are great, but that's not how things should work. So you're doing market research, like you're bringing groups of people with the chefs and and Bronx Health Reach and your team and you're kind of giving them salad, watching them eat salad, having them yeah. rate it. Yeah. Well, but I'm curious about like what are the culturally relative ingredients? Well, yes. yeah, I was going to say there. let's yeah. let's do the, the yeah. final drum roll, like the the day when everyone is like high fives, <laughs> yeah. we got it. Yeah. What is in the salad? So, yeah, so we we did all that, all the iterations, right? Um and by that we came to the dish um, by these surveys and by these tastings. Um and like I said it was greens uh, some of what we grew th- at, at the farm, but also from uh, growing YC that we sourced. Um, so there was uh, there's avocado, black beans, corn, uh, red onion, um, and mango. Nice. Yeah. yeah. So it was this. I feel tropical- like mangoes, the like yeah, little yeah. little tart- <laughs> yeah. So there, there's the tropicals. Um, you know, there's a there's some cilantro there as well, and there were about eight ingredients in the. Uh, in this, in the, in the dressing, um, that were also, you know, we wanted to make it uh, vegan friendly. Um, but the idea behind the dish was that it was culturally relevant in that, um, the black beans, the corn component, there's a large Mexican population and Latin population, um, in this, in the South Bronx. And so for them, um, the way that we wanted to introduce this dish is that it's a complete dish. It's not a side dish. Right. So whatever what you eat here and what you consume here with these greens that are local and these other components that you may have or may not, but are familiar with by way of your lineage, etc. This is a familiar dish to you, and so as such, you you're not. Um, you're not averse to it, right? But it's also a complete meal because it has the component, the protein component. It's got the carbs component. It's got the sweet, it's got the the sour component. It's got all of these aspects. And that's what we were in many ways educating on, which is health. But don't think of this as a side thing. Think yeah. of it as a, as a main dish. Yeah. What is what is the carb? Is that just like part of the bean or like? Well, what? the bean has corn? carb, the yeah. corn has carb corn, and the yeah. mango. Yeah. Whoa. Okay. Yeah. And mm-hmm. the protein, the beans, obviously. Yeah. Um, and some of the greens have carbs as well. And the avocado, right? Yeah. Um, and the fat, the avocado is, yeah. fat. Is the yeah. mango ripe or yes. not that ripe? Ripe. Okay. Yes. I don't know why I just... Yeah. Okay. Uh, it, I mean, for that population, it better be ripe. Yeah. Because <laughs> uh, yeah. I know no, there's certain, like, communities that... that yeah. Well, that like Thai, Thai salads, yeah. like green papaya, yeah. Yeah. which is um, the base of all Thai salad. Yum. Yeah. 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 But it's yeah. a very... And it's really good, but it's a very it's different... Um, like, now I'm used to because my wife happens to be Thai, but until I, like, went there and ate a lot of salad where it was like, we're just shredding papaya all day. Yeah. And it's just not the same as greens, and it's, it's a very different kind of mouthfeel and all that but um i realize i think i make a lot of bronx salads at home minus the corn i'm not I, I must admit i'm not a huge corn fan but the other things i feel like i eat a bronx salad fairly often maybe swap out something else for mango sometimes other fruits but i love fruit and salad i just never thought of it that way i think in my head 
and start calling it like for lunch I'm having a yeah. Bronx. And, but you know what also makes it aside from the dressing, which is like incredible. Um, can you tell us what's in it, or is that a secret? Um, um, so there, some of it is a secret because we we, we sure. may be bottling it soon. Cool, cool. Yeah, um, <laughs> but you know, Bronx then, dressing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And so the beauty of this Bronx salad was that to to top it off, you know, the, there are all of these components with the salad: the sweet, the sour, the um, um, the the greens, the the dressing, and then there was one thing that you know, was missing on the salad. Um, and that is the crunch, mm. right? And so it's just, you you want to engage everyone with this mouthfeel and this, you know, all of these things that actually when you finish eating, you say, yeah, I am satisfied right. because all of these things have been hit, all of these points. And then the crunch component was, uh, I don't know if you, you want to guess for the population, it wouldn't be croutons, it wouldn't be any of these things or seeds or whatever, but they wanted the plantain chips. So Love it's it. topped yeah. with plantain chips. Yeah. And now it became something that's like, oh, this speaks to me. This is culturally for me. Because everyone, whether it's the African population, uh, there, most of the immigrant populations, etc., in the South Bronx engages with plantains. They're so good. Yeah. They're so much better than the yeah. potato chips. I'm just, I'm, I'm saying it. Of course. I mean, I'm we, saying that loud. We, we've known that yeah, you since forever. Say that. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. So, I don't know, maybe you like potato chips a lot. <laughs> you know, that's, that's how we, um, comprised this dish. And it was so incredibly well received that we rolled it out in the 45 restaurants. Cause nice. we thought, the idea that, you know, we should not just because it was a, 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 a dish that obviously we worked on for so long. But what if, you know, these ideas of distribution are already there? The mom and pop restaurants are already there. Invest in them so that they could, you know, and like have this livelihood and be a part of whatever's whatever movements are going on. And so it was with that in mind that we rolled them out and also created a marketing campaign for them so that they can gain traction and see that it was viable to actually sell a salad like this. Right. Um, and so we got them interviews, we got them press and all of these things to show that and to gain traction for their businesses. Um, and that was really, really powerful. Um, we also rolled it out, rolled roll it out in nine elementary schools. Oh wow! Yeah, along with uh, small gardens mm -hmm. at their schools, and then uh, every year they would go into competition to see who made the best Bronx salad based oh, on what they great. grew. I like yeah. that. I like incredible. That. Yeah, um, I was the judge for like two of those competitions. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, it was incredible to like have kids say, you know, grow. These, a lot of these ingredients and then create the salad and then compete. Come on. Yeah. yeah. No, it's fun. You're asking the community and then you're raising this dish to parody with like, if you think of like a chili cook-off or like a burger cookout, it's like, it's not saying those things can never happen. You're just saying, well, you could also do this with salad and have yeah. this amazing, you know, yeah. full meal that has all these great ingredients. Like you said. It hits, and one thing you'll know is that, you know, in the Bronx, we are very proud people. And so you name it the Bronx salad. We are Bronx centered. And we're going to represent that, you know, we're going to be very proud of that. Oh, that's the Bronx salad. Yeah. Like I'm from the Bronx. 
you know, I love my my neighborhood or my borough and I'm going to represent this, you know. Yeah, we were talking before taping about people wearing shirts that just say like Brooklyn. So now I'm picturing you. I don't know if you made any shirts that just say like Bronx salad or just. So we had, so we, we had, we had, we had that, but you know, but it was legit. Not like the, you know, the other <laughs> ones we were talking about. about. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. These were really, these were yeah. homegrown. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin cheese. There's a reason when you think of Wisconsin, you think cheese. Cheese is a huge part of Wisconsin's history and future. In Wisconsin, the state of cheese, the tradition of cheesemaking excellence began 180 years ago, before Wisconsin was recognized as a state. Immigrants traveled to settle in this lush, green hills of Wisconsin, bringing their cheesemaking traditions with them. These storied skills combined with the freshest milk available created a cheesemaking culture that is uniquely Wisconsin. Wisconsin's 1,200 cheesemakers, many of whom are third and fourth generation, continue to pass on old world traditions while adopting modern innovations in cheesemaking craftsmanship. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. Well, yeah. so I don't want to. I don't want to rush you. Just in, in mindful of time. So this is up to the pandemic. So you have Born Juice, you mm-hmm. have the United Business Cooperative, and you have the Bronx Salad Initiative. You partner with Bronx Health Reach, all these restaurants. So, you know what happens next, and what and, and what leads you to you know focus on urban agriculture in that aspect. And I'm not saying these other things are, have gone away. Just you know, kind of catching us up a little. Yeah. So farming in. Yeah. So it's really out of that. I mean, it's all these years of of. I, there was always a vision of scale, um, but I understood that I had to um, build and 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 really be immersed in whatever it was that I was a part of at the moment. But I needed to learn that route because it all actually came together, and because I understood that in the ways that I, you know, naturally would put uh, things together. Um, I understood that I that there was a trajectory and I needed to move accordingly to develop these ideas and these relationships that will lead to this greater um, scale. Um, and it was really thinking in those terms, not knowing what that would look like, but knowing that that was the, the, the way forward um, that I that I connected uh, with people and uh, created these initiatives. Um, and then the Bronx salad showed us that scale was possible and it was really impactful. Um, and it's really from there that we took the learnings, the, the amazing things, the things that worked really, really well, the things that didn't work well. Um, and just all the, all the knowledge from that for those four years, because it was a four year pilot, um, it was just very hands-on and built the scaling of that, which is Reborn Farms. Reborn Farms um, is, you know, the ethos is that decade of work um, and all of that, the amalgamation of all of that uh, into Reborn Farms uh, as a system. Also, just the way that we engaged um, the Bronx Salad, which was this borough-wide um, 
connection that we uh, created. Um, it was also with that that we created um, Reborn Farms, um, essentially to build a decentralized system, food system. Yeah, so what is a farm as a decentralized system? So the farm as a decentralized system operates very much so, um, thinks of itself in, in a very much so centered way, right? Like you center solutions where the needs are as opposed to a trickle-down idea that, you know, is usually how our food system is. It's, everything's trickle-down, or there's the assumption that it that it, something gets to you. Um, where the Bronx is the best example of, actually, trickle-down is not, like, it's not real. It's not true. Because um, it's not true that things get to you or that food eventually gets to you in the way that it should, even when you have the largest market in the world. Uh, at your uh, doorstep. It just, it's not how it works. Which it's so crazy because like Hunt's point right there. Yeah. But you that's, know? and so I think part of what you're saying is that there's a lot of um, urban food insecurity in New York City and especially in the Bronx compared to the other boroughs, despite the fact that obviously there's tremendous wealth in New York City and we're in the middle of a region with abundant farmland and the sort of home of, you know, the urban agriculture movement. And the Bronx specifically is where all the food's passing through. So you would think between all these different things, you know, a democratically held city council and mayoral, you know, administrations year after year, you, you know, it's someone would at some point would like figure that out. And yet there's massive food security in the Bronx. So, um, I mean, I, you know, not to, I mean, you, you should put in, you're the expert, right? But I'm, this is from like the social science perspective. It's like, wow, those numbers, like yeah, something's going crazy. on here, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's generational. Yeah. Um, it, I mean, it's so connected to so many things to redlining yeah. to just disinvestment right. to white flight to everything um to the bronx you know uh having to rebuild itself by community um after arsoning and and just um just all this history that um that the bronx has had to endure um and just be so resilient Right. And done such an incredible job to just build so much beauty from all of these things, these um, social ills that have fallen on it. Um, and so it is from that standpoint, because that's the reality on the ground, um, that we get to engage in community in a very direct way and see that actually is building direct solutions. So, for example, our first farm on public housing um, is taking a lot of the things that we've done into account and now scaling that there and thinking about distribution there. Um, it's thinking about this hyper-local component. It's thinking about uh, vertical integration when it comes to um, what could be produced there to have greater value for this idea of workforce, but also educational aspects but going even beyond that like ideas of ownership right um and so how can how can we really um build an economic engine essentially by way of food um and these are the ways that we think are the best uh ways possible for that to happen um but the most important one is that you have to center yourself in the community and the community has to dictate what what it wants, what it needs, and you know it's not an you can't come 
from the outside to, again, you know, that, that's the, the example of the surveying um, and assume, you know, there's a lot of assumption. This is also why there are so many um, just people are bringing quote unquote, quote, quote unquote solutions, but they're not really solutions. They're, you know, they're, they're dreamed of in people's heads yeah. and they mean really well, but they also that's part of the reason why things don't change um, because it's not embedded um, in the community. And so our um, model is to actually, you know, flip that um, on its head and center that, center the community. So I'm curious about, like, if you could explain how this farm works, the techniques, the kind of like, um, yeah, who's actually like managing the farm, working the farm, what are you guys growing in general? So we're actually launching it in January. Okay. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. All right. So, but we've piloted in the, um, during COVID, we, we ran a couple of pilots mm -hmm. there. Um, and also with, in partnership with NYRP. Okay. Um, are you familiar with uh, yeah, the New York the, Restoration Project? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and their farms. Okay. Um, so um, clearly there, there's a soil based, um, their gardens are soil based. Um, and ours are hydroponic. Um, yeah. And so we ran um, the programs for close to two years um, with the NYRP um, partnership and then ran a couple of pilots at the rooftop uh, a year ago to now launch it uh, the beginning of next year. Yeah. yeah, I just find it so smart, like like how you're piloting it all out first. Like it just seems very well thought of and how it's almost like experimenting, like figuring it out, like using that wording of like piloting, seeing how the, the um, I don't know, this is just from what I'm hearing in my perspective, but like how the community is engaging, how they're responding, like this whole kind of aspect. So it's like, it's not rushing into things. It's like, okay, yeah. we're going to do this smaller project yeah. and then build this larger project out of it. And we're going to see how it goes, yeah. you know, like just, I, I, I really like that yeah. idea yeah. of like, like pilot experiment, like. Well, and if, and if I can add the historical component of the space you're describing, because I, I think I've been to this space every year since 2016 or 2017. I mean, it's a really interesting space and it has a somewhat interesting history and it would make sense given this, I think that you would take your time for the reasons you're stating and why you're emphasizing the community aspect. And this is not, before I say anything, to knock the previous models, but just that, hey, they're not operating now, right? So you had entrepreneurs from outside of the city coming into this space. It's a, it's a NYCHA community, this beautiful, I think it's LEED Platinum or at least LEED Gold, right? Certified building, I think it's LEED Platinum. So it's meaning it's like really sustainable, modern urban design. And on the top, they put this high-tech greenhouse. So for hydroponics, using the sun, and then you know artificial light to reinforce in the cold months, in the Northeast and you would grow, you know, leafy greens primarily, but also squash blossoms, whatever. And it was run by these entrepreneurs. They were, for whatever reason, they brought on agritecture consulting. We just had on, you know, Henry Gordon Smith. Um, and they were running it for this other group for a long time on and off. They had different levels of, you know, hundred percent built out to, um, whatever, you know, three fourths of the space built out, but they were selling, I think to restaurants primarily, they were giving away a lot to people in the building. You might be able to speak their model. I don't remember exactly without my notes, but eventually, for whatever reason, and again, we could ask them why, but but they've wound that down. I mean, it's not you know their consultancy. They're not. They don't run farms directly like that. I don't think. And basically, no one was using it. 
And so you had this amazing space where no one was, was activating, no one was bringing local food into the community. And the earlier models of primarily sort of selling to restaurants in Manhattan, maybe that's part of it. I mean, I think, I mean, maybe this is a question, I guess, to formulate as a question, you know, what is your vision for like, you're going to grow food in the South Bronx. And I think part of what you're describing, correct me if I'm wrong, is that you're training students who want to learn these skills, you know, high tech, modern horticulture who are in the South Bronx, who wouldn't necessarily otherwise be able to learn that anywhere. I mean, there isn't, this isn't the kind of skill you can easily figure out. Um, maybe Melissa, you can speak to this too, right? How do you get education as an urban farmer? Um, so I think it's an interesting project for a number of reasons. And, and some of the slowness is your, your thoughtfulness as an entrepreneur, social entrepreneur. And some of it, I think, is you're watching these other projects happen and thinking about, hmm, you know, what would I do differently? What can I learn from from what they're doing? Well, so. yeah. And, 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 and how much indoor growing and these and like indoor companies and greenhouses in general has changed within the past five years, which we've talked about in other shows of just like, you know, yeah, what what is going on in this hydroponics indoor world in general? And and what how are these businesses are they, you know, are they still able to produce? Are they still able to run? Yeah, what's the right use of the technology? If you, if yeah. it's not something where you're going to make bajillions of dollars growing lettuce, which, you know, spoiler, no one's ever made that much money growing lettuce, <laughs> then maybe that doesn't mean you just don't do it. It's it's like how do we do it? What's the right way yeah. to do it? And I think that's where you're bringing a somewhat different vision of well, okay, what, what what would that look like if, you know? So I don't know, Henry, if there's a lot there, but if you want yeah, to sort sorry. of just speak yeah, a little I, to I the saying, model no, or dream. I, I, just, no, <laughs> uh, you're, I mean, you're assessing things really well. Um, and I would say, you know, to the what you were saying earlier, it's, and what you're alluding to, a lot of it is because community is not the center of a lot of these projects. It's just not. It's yep. an afterthought. Yeah. Um, and then you try to sort of like build build a tentacle mm. that's community that fulfills something, something um, because you may have these other pressures that are like forcing you to be a specific thing. Um, but also you, you don't come from that. Mm. Um, that doesn't mean that you can't service that. You should. But also, it's, it may not be natural for you because that's not your world. Right. You're fighting an uphill battle to engage with the community. If you're coming from outside, well, you're doing and the it community for marketing knows, or PR. You know, like the community right. knows. It's right. like, what what are you guys doing? Why yeah. are you yeah. here? And like, to, you know, to your point of, um, you know, when uh, certain projects bring um, people from the outside or whatever, what could happen? Um, there's there may not be synergy. Um, and then part of the reason why, you know, we've been thoughtful and methodical about things is because it's a privilege to be in community. It's a privilege. And we, it is the privilege of a lifetime to be given an opportunity to think about things and to say, oh, okay, try here or let's do this or let's partner. That's a privilege. And I take it as such, 100%. Mm-hmm. And it is that that allows me to iterate and to think about things and to say, oh, well, let's partner, let's pilot, because there is that. And I see it like that. Um, and it is from that privilege, I don't, I don't minimize that. And that's what allows us to think like that and be um, experimental and or try things out because the way that we're looking to design things is that there are certain pressures that we 
are opting out of, right? That doesn't mean that, you know, moving forward as you expand certain things that you won't have certain pressures that are economic, et cetera. But initially the idea was to not have those pressures, which makes everything really, really hard also, right? Because if you have a bunch of money, then you go and do something. Uh, but that doesn't mean you're going to do it right. Well, yeah, and you have to answer to whoever who is giving you that money. Right. Yeah. And who is yeah. your boss? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and you I, know? And, and I just think there's there's this matrix you're drawing, which is really, really smart, which is um, that community is a strength. And the slowness, the methodical approach is a strength. The power of having these many voices, these many proverbial chefs in the kitchen is a strength. It's not a deficit. Now, of course, the deficit is in the real world, in the market economy, you know, capital so the lack of capital is is the sort of downside. But on the other, on the flip side, all these well-financed farms that we've been talking about, talking to, you know, this industrial, what I call the financial industrial vision for indoor farming, their strength is they have the capital on hand. They have that VC money. But, but that's short term, <laughs> yeah. right? Because yeah. long term, they're lacking all these connections, as you said, right? Synergies. They're lacking ways to turn that money into some longer term engagement. If you think of it you know, at the level of culture, they're not really changing minds. So they put a product on the shelves. If I'm a consumer, there's a million kinds of lettuce. Most people don't care. Lettuce is a commodity. I mean, they just sort of, they buy whatever. Some of, some people have been successful. We've talked about it many times on the show. You know, small holds successfully turned oyster mushrooms in the, the Northeast, at least, in the urban U.S., into something kind of new. Even if the, you could have gotten oyster mushrooms before, it was suddenly, it was like, oh, this is like a branded experience. But I think a lot of that VC-backed world has struggled to find the synergies to connect tentacularly with the community in any kind of honest way. Some people have, but you know, most haven't. So I think you're just sort of comparing these two modes. Maybe that's a simplification, but I think it's helpful sometimes to see it that way and say, no, like, I love what you said. You're fighting from a place of strength with your strengths. You're not trying to, you know, it's not parallel. You're not fighting from the same way that a, that a VC backed firm would be, you know, constructing yeah. a business model. Yeah. There's this idea of, um, currency. Right. Mm. Um, we're talking about like financial, financial, which is in this paradigm, in this world, that's how things sort of work, right? Um, and allow you to create and to hire and to do all these things. But there are a lot of currencies and um, <laughs> the downfall of a, of a lot of ideas or people, et cetera, um, is that they only engage in one currency. And they, there are, there. I mean, there are limitless amounts of currencies, and when you rise to that, you you see not just quote unquote opportunities. You just see the value of so many things. But it's about that. It takes you understanding that there's value in something, and that that is an exchange and a currency, and these currencies operate in 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 other ways that are not necessarily transactional like these other ones. And these can solidify certain things that can weather a storm and could actually penetrate certain things and areas and um, just, you know, take your vision even further because they take that that currency takes it personal. Okay, and that's a different type of engagement, and it's that you know it's not focused on capital, but it's a currency that you know in this capitalist world we don't value like that. But they are there. We just dispose them or 
you know, they're just not relevant. Um, whereas where I come from, that's that's the only currency we have. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we understand that, you know, and so it's it's the valuation of that. That that's the difference. And like if you're coming from that, then you're engaging completely. different. It's a different paradigm than if you're engaging like this. That doesn't mean that you're not tapping into funding later on or whatever to have an expanded um, operation or uh, scale, et cetera, but you've already set the tone. You've already set it. Yeah, your mindset is different. Yeah, yeah, the model is set. And this is how, if you wanna, if you wanna engage with us, it's like this. Um, and this is how we, and you know, and 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 this is this it's viable because of these things because of these ways and how we connect um, and then it becomes really really attractive because you know it's solidified in that way. Well, there's so many. I mean, I really feel like we need a part two. I'm just gonna say. So we're we're coming up on time. I think um, Melissa, maybe you have some final questions. I know there's several projects looming. We didn't even really get it too much into the model. I mean, I think there's more rather to say, let me put it that way, about, you know, education and your interest there. Um, and yeah, some of the just the basic horticultural questions. What do you like to grow? What do you see reborn growing um, and how how you would, you know, where are the crops going after you grow them? So I don't know if there's anything you want to touch on there. Um, but yeah, Melissa, do you have sort of final questions for Henry? Final thoughts? No, no, I don't think so. I'm just going to like sit and think about, you know, just see certain words, like thinking about currency, value, um, privilege. Um, yeah, just, just see certain words and, and the meanings of them within, within the world, within like the world of urban agriculture, but the world in general and, and, and within New York city and, and within certain neighborhoods, um, and, and specifically community, um, so I, I think I'm just going to like sit and kind of think about all of yeah. that for for a while. Yeah, this and, one. Oh, yeah. man. Sorry. I didn't mean to, I just this is like this conversation. I feel like we could do a whole other episode on like social theory that I feel like, Henry, you're touching on the gift economy or Fred Moten talking about laying in the cut, like being prepared for the commons, developing the commons where you don't know when you're going to need what exactly, but it's more important to have those social foundations, which is very different than a business where you're starting with the pro forma with how much you're going to sell each piece of lettuce for, et cetera. Well, and also just this mindset. Yeah. yeah, And this idea of, of I'm always in the, in this forefront of, of, um, cause I, I, you know, I feel like a lot of us think about like climate change and adaptation and all of these things, that are happening and like with COVID and the fallout of restaurants and all of this stuff that's going back to basics, you know, and it's just, Oh, okay. How are we going to, I mean, this is drastic, but like, how are we going to survive? Yeah. I was just watching, what is that movie? Intergalactic? No, not interstellar. Interstellar. uh, Interstellar. I just watched Interstellar. But, but just like, how are we going to, um, yeah. With, with all of these things that have always been there. Right. There, there's just new looming things, but the strength within, um, yeah, within all of this, within, you know, these things that, that have been within communities for centuries and thousands yeah. of years and all this other yeah, stuff. Yeah, the resilience right? of the commons and how do you yeah. bring it in um, such a cutthroat market as New York where that's not yeah. privileged by institutions. It's not, people don't have this language. So you're in a way having to teach I'm guessing a lot of folks, right? I see you not. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's been, I feel like that's been my job. It, it's gotten better post-COVID, 
because sure. people kind of like before people would look at me like I was crazy. <laughs> they I would t- talk to them about these systems and all these things and scaling and what we're thinking, and they would just be like, "What are you talking about?" Yeah. Um, like, now what are you it's selling? like yeah. perspective shift. Now it's like yeah, 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 yeah. Shift. When, where, why, how? <laughs> yeah. Like yeah, yeah, it's a shift. Um, and then to your point about just you know the climate and all of these things um it's it's forcing other people to find new ways forward right certain communities have always had it it's just never been because there's a dominant um narrative or a dominant culture um that in many ways does not allow for certain voices or certain uh, customs, et cetera, because they're not viable within the dominant culture. Uh, but what you're now starting to see is that the dominant culture is uh, collapsing. Yeah. Um, these ideas are collapsing um, and they're all resorting to these things and these other components or ideas that were not, not either not incentivized or not even thought of as viable. Yeah. Um, or reduced to being inferior to to other systems and other things because they were very much so because they were simple. So I know some right. of, some of this translates like you want the Bronx to be a, not just a place where people are thinking about climate change or adapting to climate change, but are really leading this conversation yeah. and cultural institutions along with you know all these other um, dimensions of society you've named. Um, can all participate in that story, and that's something that, that I know you've you've put time into thinking about. Um, I do feel like we're going to have to do a part two or something because uh, I think we're we're basically out of time for sure. Um, Henry, you should have the last word. Is you know what's what, is there anything you want to make sure you know the, to kind of or like say? new possibilities? Yeah, or things. yeah. In the, in the in the spirit of everything that we talked about, um, I do believe that the Bronx can lead the way because we we lead the way in so much. Um, Culturally, I mean, you know, from the ashes, creating hip hop and the world now, uh, it's 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 I would say the the heartbeat of the world. Uh, whether it's language, whether it's dressing, whether it's uh, you know, fashion, dance, whether it's music, like it's the Bronx identity that is now a global identity, um, and. You know, it's not just that, but also in food and in tradition, um, we are we've led in so many ways that I do believe that um, this next stage and specifically a lot of things that we're planning when it comes to climate, when it comes to the built environment, when it comes to cities, um, when it comes to communities and urban spaces, um, I do believe that the Bronx can lead the way because it's it's been um, uh, in a in a specific position uh, to do that by way of the resiliency, but also because it it offers a stark reality to how things were, to how things can be, and one of these things that I want to mention is an opportunity that's coming up, um, which you know many of the public may know, but um, um, this idea of uh, creating an economic engine or uh, ideas of of, of transformation um, have now been thought of in the Bronx by way of infrastructure and thinking about, for example, the Kingsbridge Armory. That is, you know, it's the largest armory in the world. It's been sitting empty for the last 
30 years. It's close to like 600,000 square feet. Um, it's a massive, massive uh, space that can accommodate the future and transform the Bronx. And this future can be, um, I would say, focused around many of the things we talked about, whether it's agriculture um, or sustainable uh, ideas or pipelines, et cetera. Um, And we believe that that is an opportunity to uh, for the Bronx, for the community, um, and the stakeholders there, and so we so we are in support of that, and we're championing uh, for um, community organizations um, to also partner with us as we are part of this group uh, that envisions uh, a way forward for this building and communities. Um, our group is called the Reborn Community Alliance, and. It is from this space of community and engagement that we are looking to find solutions around climate mitigation, around hyperlocal food production at scale, um, et cetera. So, yeah, I'll put it out there for your audience to definitely have that um, on their minds uh, and think about ways that possibly we can partner and make this um, a reality um, and be the global reference for cities. Excellent, excellent. Yeah, and it's it's an amazing opportunity. I mean, how often in the heart of a dense urban metropolis do you just have a space as big as the Garden Order or an airport just sitting there unused for half a century? It's a, it's a, an immaculate giant building. They're really next to a bunch of colleges, um, housing. I mean, you know, it, it's it's a very vibrant neighborhood. It's not at all a dead area. It just yeah. has this big building in the middle of it, yeah. surrounded by trees and. Um, I think that's a really interesting uh, topic that we should have you on to discuss more, some other specific projects, and check in with you once the uh, the Reborn Farm site in Morsenia is, is up and running, uh, the rooftop we mentioned. So, Henry, thank you so much for being on. We didn't even get to ask what your favorite uh, pizza is in the city, which we, we, we could always ask. But how could, how could people find out more that's about the, right. um, the projects that you're working on, on yeah. Reborn? How could, you know... Um, yeah, I, I'd love to hear from from the audience. Um, you can definitely reach uh, reach me at Henry uh, Obispo on on um, LinkedIn or Reborn Farms also on LinkedIn, uh, as well as um, Instagram under Sustainable Poppy. Nice. Um, yes, I own I own that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> fully own that. Um, and also Reborn Farms on uh, uh, IG, uh, as well as the website, RebornFarms.com. Um, and just in general, you know, holla at me uh, wherever you see me or, or uh, uh, by way of friends or whomever uh, you're connected with that um, I may know also. I would love to be in conversation with um, all of you. We'll put shows, uh, show notes. We'll have links. That's the word I was trying to say. We'll put the links in the show notes. Uh, thank you so much, Henry Bispo, for joining us. Um, it's my pleasure. Yeah, thank you so much. My great pleasure. Thank you for having me. This has been Fields. Uh, happy planting. Fields is powered by Riverside. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradio.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com 
slash Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. And thanks for listening.